From Gimlet, I'm Alex Bloomberg, and this is Without Fail, the show where I talk with artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures and what they've learned from both. L-O-D-G, one G, right? E and one T, right? Yep. Henry Blodgett, what do you think is the first, let's take a bet. What's the first thing that's going to come up? I have no idea. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be your new thing. I don't think oh, it's. Oh, I hope so. Okay, here we go. Ready? Henry Blodgett, Wikipedia, Business Insider. Hey! I think you've, I think you've kicked, kicked your past off the front page of Google. All right. Can be done. As any Google search of his name will show, Henry Blodgett is a co-founder of the digital media site Business Insider. Business Insider is a very successful financial and business website. It's been around for over a decade. A couple of years ago, it was acquired for over $300 million. And that's partly why I'm talking to him on today's episode. But that's not the main reason. The main reason is that past, the past that he hopes has disappeared from the top of his Google ranking. And what happened in his past happened when he was at the top of his game in a very different industry. Henry was a celebrity during the dot-com-era stock market bubble. He was a Wall Street superstar, made millions of dollars a year. And as the dot-com market grew, so did his reputation. But when that dot-com bubble imploded, so did Henry's career. Henry became the face of a major Wall Street corruption investigation. His name was synonymous with speculation and greed and dot-com-era overreach. He was investigated by the SEC and eventually banned for life from working in the securities industry. I wanted to talk to Henry about all this, because I wanted to know what it was like to be the face of something so exciting and celebrated when it was going well. And then what was it like when that very same thing blows up in your face? And what do you do after all that happens to you? Henry and I started our conversation at the beginning of it all, back before he was a Wall Street celebrity, before he was kicked out of the industry, before he'd even broken into the industry in the first place, when he's a freshly minted humanities major, just out of college, looking to get into a career in journalism. I started at a small newspaper in Massachusetts, uh-huh. covering everything from high school sports to art and so forth, and then moved to a bunch of magazines in New York. Why did you want to be a journalist? What was, the, what was exciting to you about that? I liked writing. I liked the process of learning about things. I was very curious. I wanted to, you know, I had pretensions of being a writer of some sort, so it all seemed to fit. But he's also learning something that journalists learn pretty quickly. The pay is not so great. And so Henry bounced around for a while, looking for a job where he could use his writing skills, but also make a decent living. He did a stint at CNN Business and eventually found his way to Wall Street, covering business from the inside as a Wall Street analyst. Now, analysts are the people that are employed at Wall Street banks and research firms who research and write reports on big publicly traded companies. Henry really liked the work, liked interviewing the CEOs and executives of the companies he was covering, combing through the earnings filings, writing all this research up into big reports, It was exciting work, and it was an exciting time to be doing the work because there was this new thing on the horizon that Wall Street was just starting to take notice of, the internet. What really kicked it off was the Netscape IPO, which I think was in 1995. That was the moment where there was just this explosion of interest in the internet. And um, suddenly, dozens and dozens of companies wanted to go public. Netscape was trading at this fantastic valuation. People who had seen the internet got it. 
and they saw how big it could become, but 99% of people hadn't seen it. They thought it was just another crazy wave. And so the next four years was all about, I think, the whole world realizing how big the internet ultimately could be. All of a sudden, Netscape was like, the internet is here, there's money in it, and Wall Street needs to adapt That's right. to that. There, there were literally dozens of companies and soon hundreds and then thousands of companies taking advantage of the opportunity. Investors keep flooding in. Technology companies soared more than 450%. Internet stocks drove a powerful surge on Wall Street today. For my career, what happened was Wall Street, Wall Street research departments, suddenly every department had to have an internet analyst, and there were suddenly 30 empty chairs, and I was lucky enough to fill one of them. <laughs> um, say, I know what a browser is, and I can write, and I can analyze, and, and let me try to write a report. <laughs> I know what a browser is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. There was a time, kids, when you could get paid for no, knowing no, what a no, browser no, no. is. Um, so, there, so Netscape explodes. You are in the right place at the right time with the right knowledge. Talk me through the, the, your rise. How does that actually happen? How does it feel inside? Um, I, was, I was growing my reputation as an institutional analyst, meeting lots of accounts that no one in the broader world would have heard of, but that managed a, a ton of money. And so my career was going along quite normally. You're not famous by any stretch of the imagination, are you? Not, no. No one outside of the financial industry would have known me. But I talked to a lot of other analysts, and I said, look, I really like what I'm doing. What do I need to do to break out? A friend of mine who's a very good mentor, he said, just do great work, but also at some point you're going to have to make a bold call. You could really stick a flag in the ground and go for it. So Henry started looking around for a bold call to make for a company that he believed everyone else was wrong about and that only he saw the true potential of. And he found that company in Amazon. Now, remember, this is 1998, so Amazon is nothing like the tech behemoth that we know today. In 1998, Amazon was an online store, but instead of selling everything in the world like it sells today, it sold just one thing, books. And what was conventional wisdom on Amazon at that moment? Well, a lot of people thought it was going to go bankrupt. They just sell books. It's crazy. They're losing all this money. It's obviously a fad. They're going to go bankrupt. Other people said, no, no, it's a good business. Lots on the internet, but it's just a book company. So when you look at the valuation, it couldn't possibly be worth what it is. I read smart people on both sides. I talked to the company. um, And I came back and said, oh. I think this thing is going to be a big success. I don't know exactly what it's worth, but here is a range of outcomes. And I picked a nice conservative target, uh, 20% above the current price or what have you, which is what analysts do. And then within a month, I think the stock was up 100%. Uh So it's time to raise my price target. Talked to a couple on Salesforce, and, and one of the salespeople just said, look, what do you really think it can do? Like, stop telling us the conservative it could do this because you know what? It's risky and volatile and stuff. It can yeah. only go up 20%. I stop don't care. Stop being such an analyst. Exactly. <laughs> like, what do you really think? A couple of weeks later, I was doing the model to adjust my Amazon target. And I said, you know what? Fine. I'm going to tell the Salesforce what it really can do. And it was trading at $240 a share at that time. And I said, look, it could go to $400 a share. This, Henry realized, was his bold call. He had a belief that was far outside of the consensus view. If he was right, it would make his reputation. And all he had to do was say it to the world. So Henry put out a research report saying that Amazon stock is not going to go up just a little. It's going to go up a lot. And this report, when it came out, it was big. It moved markets. Amazon stock jumped 20% just on Henry's report alone. It was also controversial. Other analysts were skeptical. They said Henry's call was irrational, irresponsible. 
Amazon was so controversial because so many people were convinced it was going to go out of business that it was like striking a match to a, a you know, jar of gasoline. I mean, it was just an explosion that morning, huge high profile. And then fortunately, the stock got there faster than I expected. Henry had predicted that Amazon's stock price would hit 400 within a year. It turned out it took less than a month. With that bold, correct call, Henry catapulted to the top of his field. It was pivotal to the broader recognition of me. A friend of mine called me up who I hadn't heard from since I was a kid. He was a good friend of mine. He said, you know, you, you, you're sort of a celebrity now. <laughs> so it was pivotal to that. It was yeah. not pivotal to my career on Wall Street, which right. was on a good trajectory as it was. Right, but it was, it was pivotal to you becoming Suddenly, right. the face of Wall Street analysts, which perhaps was pivotal to what came later. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, so your career was already progressing very well, but this puts you into sort of like the public spotlight in a certain way. Yes. And then you got hired at Merrill Lynch. What's the life of a celebrity analyst? What are you doing? Well, at that time, this was 1999. It was absolutely the peak of internet mania. And it was just white hot. So tremendous demands from everywhere to come talk to people, meet companies that might be going public, talk to investors who are investing in companies. It was um, a period where our research team built from me to 11 people a year and a half later because there was so much going on. And it's this all, was happening it's like, at every firm. Uh-huh. There were other, many other analysts out there. And, and right. so it was just a very busy time. Right. Was it fun? <laughs> it was exhausting. Um, but it was tremendously interesting. I think that I knew and I think our team knew we were in a historic moment with this cool technology and what was going on. So it, parts of it were fun. Parts of it were draining. Uh-huh. It was, it, the, the visibility was also a little bit frightening because there was so much financial media and so many people were focused on the market that when you said anything, it would reverberate into the market and that would have implications for companies and they would come back and complain and, and do a lot worse than that. So um, it was a tense time. Here's the thing you need to understand about Wall Street at this time. Banks like Merrill Lynch, the company where Henry worked, they make money in a couple of different ways. One of those ways is by underwriting business transactions, underwriting when companies go public or when companies want to acquire another company, they will hire a bank like Merrill Lynch to help them do that and pay Merrill Lynch millions and millions of dollars in fees. And so banks like Merrill Lynch, they thought they would have a better chance of having companies hire them for their IPOs or their acquisitions if their research analysts, like Henry, were saying that the company was worth a lot and recommending that people buy stock in it. And that put a lot of pressure on research analysts within banks like Merrill Lynch. I felt pressure from everybody in those days. Everybody, every constituency. But we also felt like it was our job to sort through the pressure. Is there an example of that that stands out to you? Like at that moment where you said something that like had reverberations? I I mean, there are many... um, just cases where we would publish something or we would say something, and if if we were just talking, it might be characterized in a particular way, and suddenly the company would call up furious or investors would call up furious because they owned the stocks, they didn't want the stocks to go down or, or what have you. Um, pretty much any time 
you said something that was negative, you were going to get shelled. I mean, at the peak of the market, we would say something that the somebody on TV would say, well, the stock's down because, and our mailboxes would fill up with death threats from people who owned stocks. Wait, what? Are you serious? <laughs> yes. Individuals would call up and threaten you with death. That okay. happened? Yes. That you, is you, wild. You, voicemail in those days, you would yeah. get voicemails. You know, it's a tough time. Yeah. Um, when did you know that things were turning for the internet economy? My view of the situation in the late 90s, and I've actually reread some of my reports um, to confirm this, was that it was likely to be a bubble, mm-hmm. and like many other financial bubbles, but there was enough profound stuff going on there that the best companies would ultimately get through it and survive. Um, so I expected at some point there would be a big turn. Lots of companies would go out of business. I did not expect that it would be an absolute cataclysm. And stocks like Yahoo, which I owned personally and thought would be one of the big winners, would go down 97%. I owned Amazon. I totally believed in it. The stock went from $113 a share to 6 When everything began to roll over, which I think was the fall of really for the internet sector, early 2000, I wasn't surprised. But then it rolled over by dropping 30%. Then it was down 50%. Then they were down 80%. And by that time, you think, oh, they're down 80%. I mean, what am I going to do? Like pull, like sell now? And then suddenly they were down another <laughs> 80% from there. So that's what a real shakeout looks like. So it was much wow. worse than I expected. Was there a moment where you realized that it was much worse than you expected? Or was it just like sort of dawning, sort of rolling, dawning realizations like every day or every week? It was rolling. It was really, it was 18 months and it was relentless. And um, I had uh, been a student of the 1929 crash. It was actually sort of a, a mythological story in my family because a relative of mine famously made a colossal fortune in the 1920s and then was on this Trans-Siberian Railway when the market crashed in 1929 and he lost everything. So this was sort of a seminal story in my family. So I had studied all of those periods. So it wasn't that I said, wow, this is just unfathomable. It's never happened before. It's just, wow, okay, now I understand how these things happen. Mm -hmm. Because even though you can't see it when you're at the peak, it's just... It just gets worse every week. Uh And and then finally, we're at the bottom. The big impression that everybody gets after, when you're looking back at a crash in hindsight, is that everybody just went crazy and they were so stupid because obviously it was going to come. That's it. That's what I always thought. It was like, ah, everyone in 1928, they were just a bunch of morons, obviously. And what you actually realize when you go through it is, why did fund managers buy AOL in 1998? Well, because it had already gone up 5,000%. And by the way, it went up another 150%. So if they hadn't bought it, they would have been fired. You can go through that with pretty much every decision maker in it. And then pretty much every decision that everybody makes is logical under the circumstances. That intimate knowledge of the emotional dynamics of a boom and bust, that was cold comfort to Henry at the time. 
That dot-com bust had wreaked havoc on the economy. Millions of people's stock portfolios and retirement plans had thrown the country into a recession, and Henry was the very visible face of all that carnage, the person that many people around the world, fairly or not, blamed for it. I'd gone from a, having such a reputation that one person asked if he could bring his children in to meet me because it was such an honor. And that was sort of the reputation that I had around the world. But I went from that to being the global pinata. It's like, here is the most visible moron who said all of these positive things about these companies and, and conned you into investing. Whatever he said, the Pied Piper, he sucked you in and now your retirement is obliterated. And so it, it was, I felt horrible. Absolutely horrible. Meanwhile, my team is getting shrunk because everybody's getting laid off. And of course, this is going on all throughout the industry as well. And what were you telling yourself to get through that? Well, I felt like my overall thesis was right. I had said a big crash is coming. It was worse than I thought it was going to be. The some of the good companies were still doing okay. Fortunately, we still have Amazon, AOL, and Yahoo. We sort of have, and and <laughs> inexplicably. So, yes. so, I, so yeah. I felt like the the overall thing was okay, but it was I, again just trying to help and get through it. And I didn't want to hide either. I had been visible at the mm-hmm. on the way up. I didn't want to suddenly disappear. Henry Blodgett did not disappear. In fact, if anything, he suddenly became even more visible, but not in a good way. That's after these words from our sponsors. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Henry Blodgett. Things were about to get worse for Henry. Remember that pressure he felt internally at Merrill Lynch to say that a company was more valuable than maybe he actually thought it was? Well, there were some emails that were leaked, emails written by Henry where he would privately call some stocks junk or crap or a powder keg that Merrill Lynch publicly was saying were fine. And those emails, they caught the eye of New York's Attorney General, Elliot Spitzer. When was the first time you realized you were being investigated? Uh, when I got a subpoena from Mr. Spitzer. The uh, Attorney General of New York State? Soon to become known as the Sheriff of Wall Street. He set a subpoena because there had been a news story about a downgrade of a stock that we had made, and it was a downgrade around a a banking transition, and the article made it sound like, hey, isn't this too big a coincidence to be true? And so Elliot Spitzer, being um, an enterprising prosecutor, said, hey, let's look into that. Uh Uh-huh. So there was an article about like a downgrade that you had made of a yes. banking stock. Then, then there'd been some sort of transa- transaction at the company. Yes. Got it. So we started looking into that. And what, what was that like to get a subpoena? Um, it was a, I, I knew incredibly little about the legal system. And uh, I went on in that and spent five days testifying in a little room uh-huh. with a couple of very expert Elliot Spitzer prosecutors who asked me all sorts of questions. And it's a very intense experience. And um, ultimately, the investigation continued for, I think, another six months until after I had left the firm. And it was then that um, Elliot Spitzer and his team basically alleged that there was an enormous conflict of interest between the banking side of Wall Street firms and the research side, uh-huh. and they used our team as an example of how the teams did work with each other quite closely and and so forth. Right. Um, I mean, basically, his allegation against me personally and the firm was, um, look, here, you said some things in email. I don't see the same things in the report, obviously, you weren't right. telling the truth in the report, to which we could only say at that point, we never wrote a word in a research report that wasn't true. Email's very casual. 
you're right. debating things. It, you know, it's not it's not a professional communication, but um, that did not hold any water with Elliot. Uh, which it came out and like there was some the the headline became something like you'd ra- rated something neutral to buy and then like talked about it in an email as like a. POS. Yes, right? I, I famously referred to stock <laughs> as a piece of junk. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and again, I had a lot of stocks in my own portfolio at that time that were down 98%. So I thought of my entire portfolio as pieces of junk at that point. So it didn't seem like such a stretch. You can't put the phrase piece of junk in a research report. So anyway, but yes, it made a very colorful exhibit. Did you, when you were first subpoenaed, did you think... This was going to go anywhere? What, what was no, it? Yeah. I had no idea because analysts had worked closely with, with corporate finance for 20 years. And in fact, there had been many rep- articles in the Wall Street Journal talking about how in the 1990s, analysts had to, quote, wear two hats where they were speaking to in institutional investors and they were speaking to company managements about going public and, and so forth. It was very well known. And... So it didn't even occur to me that mm-hmm. anybody had done anything wrong or what have you. And right. I didn't feel when I went in, I said, well, we'll explain the way it is, which is the way everybody knows it is. Right. His basic thesis was the thing that you just told me, which is sort of like, there's a lot of weird conflicts of interest here. And and you didn't go, and, and he was saying like, yeah, there is, and they, they shouldn't exist. And I want them to stop. Right. He focused, you, he focused th- on one of them, which was the research banking relationship. The research and, banking, and right. there were many others that he or anybody else could have focused on. But <laughs> right. again, there, there are conflicts of interest in every business. Uh-huh. And, and so, uh, but I, th- I do think he, as a result of the investigation, it made the role of an analyst more clearly defined, especially with regard to the banking side of Wall Street. And do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I, I think that... One of the, I mean, first of all, anything that helps investors, including small investors, is great. I I do think that the whole thing that happened after the 1990s, including the fact that so many companies went public and then got destroyed, um, is has deprived the public markets of companies that go public at a much earlier stage than companies that go public today. And for example. Amazon, when Amazon went public, was a $400 million market cap, which sounds like a lot, but for a market cap, is tiny. When Facebook went public, it was already worth $30 billion. So let's say you're a small investor and you're very excited about a young company called Facebook that you use and nobody else, nobody else knows about. You don't have the opportunity to invest in companies like that anymore. And so I think that's too bad. On the other hand, if the job is to protect investors from losing money, in companies like that, and a lot of will fail, then okay, then then it's better that companies don't go public. Mm-hmm. It's a very even-handed response. I, look, I, I think free flow of capital is good. I don't think anybody should be, be buying IPOs who doesn't completely understand the risk. So I would think it would be good if it were cheaper and easier to go public than it is now. But if that is not how we collectively want our publics to be, markets to be, that's okay. Look, I, I, I really didn't feel like we had anything to hide. And so... And there was no, in in the ultimate report that Spitzer put out, there was no Blodgett said this, this wasn't true, or what have mm-hmm. you. I mean, there's none of that. Spitzer actually dropped me from the case, which was nice of him. Um, it was, um, you know, ultimately what, it, what, what Spitzer concluded was, look, there is a conflict of interest here, mm-hmm. and this is bad, and we should get rid of it. And there it was. 
But it wasn't over for Henry. Spitzer may have dropped him from that case, but a different investigation had started, one by the Securities and Exchange Commission. I did settle the SEC, and, and with an SEC settlement, unfortunately, one piece of the settlement is you agree never to talk about it. Right, so right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you tell me, like, when you got a call from the SEC that you were that they were first going to be investigating you or taking action against you of, of any kind, do you remember that moment and how you felt? Can you talk about that? I, I wasn't shocked. I hoped that it wouldn't proceed, but it did. And, um, you know, it, it, we, we ended up settling the SEC case, too, and, and mm-hmm. uh, neither admit nor deny. Yes. But this, it became clear that, oh, like, you're going to be one of the villains yes. in this thing. Yes. Hit the road, Henry. A stiff penalty handed down from regulators to one-time star Wall Street analyst Henry Blodgett. He has been banned for life. Blodgett paying around $4 million uh, in fines for his role in putting out research that uh, really only advanced the banking interests of his firm. Early as July 2000, Blodgett called one stock, Infospace, a powder keg, but Infospace remained on Merrill's favored 15 list of stocks that the firm was recommending through December 5th of 2000. Did that feel fair that you were the villain? I don't, I, I felt, I felt that we had done a good and honorable job, even though I felt like a complete moron mm-hmm. for missing the top. What was the darkest moment for you in this whole time? I, I, I had a lot of dark moments then. I would walk outside. I would get the copy of my hometown newspaper, the New York Times, and I would see myself on the cover. Um, I would be walking through Times Square, and I would go to the NASDAQ market site, and I would be able to read the... Uh, subtitles on the screens because the people on the street have to be able to read and I would see two people talking and people like, you know, this is not like, this is not like a Blodgett situation. When they were talking about some bad thing that happened, it wasn't as bad as what happened with me. You know, that sucked. You I literally th- overheard people saying this isn't a Blodgett situation. Yeah, you know, defending it. It's like, it's not like that. And so forth. I have some charming people would shout at me sometimes. Um, but mostly, I just, I felt mortified. I felt so embarrassed that... I had, you know, anybody who had had worked with me or whatever had sort of been drawn into this. And I felt like I had been given the the equivalent of a dishonorable discharge. You know, I get kicked uh-huh. out of the industry. It just, it just felt embarrassed and humiliated about it. And I was worried about my professional and personal future, especially with re- respect to my children. I, I did not want to be... The dad, do not speak his name. Um, he had something good going for a while, but we don't talk about it anymore. And then he you became know. a poster child for uh, global yeah, exactly. capitalistic like greed. Yeah, exactly. Did you feel in all that, in all the feelings that you were going through at the moment, did you feel like you'd done something wrong? No. And again, I'm going back to Spitzer, not the SEC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our position was we behaved honorably through this and uh-huh. we did not write a word in a research report that we didn't believe. For what it's worth, I believe Henry when he says this. If you do read through those emails, a lot of times he's pushing back on people who are putting pressure on him to rate a stock in a certain way. But there's a second reason as well. For five years, I ran a podcast called Planet Money that covered finance and economics for NPR. I covered a second worse boom and bust than the one Henry was part of. I covered the housing meltdown and the ensuing Great Recession 
Because of the years of reporting that we did at Planet Money, I know more about the inner workings of Wall Street and finance than I ever thought I would. I can go deep on collateralized debt obligations, credit default swaps, muni markets, inverted yield curves. But I also learned a lot about the emotional dynamics people go through in the wake of a great financial calamity. There's so much pain, so much misery and lost fortunes and lost jobs, and the human toll that that all takes, the rise in depression and violence and addiction. There are so many victims that it seems like there must be a villain. There must be some person, someone we can point to who caused all this pain. And in the course of our reporting at Planet Money, we did find villains. We found ruthless people who lied and cheated and cynically profited at the expense of the less powerful and less informed. But those people didn't cause the crisis. The crisis was caused by a system and by people who operated within that system. People in a camp I believe Henry is in. People who, if they had a sin, it was a pretty common one, the sin of wanting to get rich. They achieved that goal in a system with inherent conflicts of interest, and that system later broke with devastating consequences. For most of the people in this camp, they also suffered consequences. Although since they were rich, their suffering wasn't as bad as the suffering of others. They hunkered down, waited it out, and as the economy recovered, so did they. And by and large, they picked back up in the finance careers that they'd had before. But for Henry, of course, that wasn't possible. The SEC had banned him from that path. And so he needed to do something else. After the break, Henry turns to an industry that many people trust even less than Wall Street, journalism. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Henry Blodgett. When we left off, Henry was kicked out of the industry in which he'd built his career. He had to start over. So he turned to something he did way back before he started on Wall Street, journalism. When Martha Stewart got in trouble. I remember thinking, wow, this is a fascinating situation. I know some things about the situation that she's in. I wonder if anybody would publish me if I were to write about this. And I called a friend of mine at The New Yorker um, said, Larissa, you know, would anybody do this? And she said, I know just the person. Uh, and it was Jacob Weisberg at Slate. And I went to see Jacob and he said, we would love to hire you to cover the market. You're Stewart proposing trial. a stunt journalism <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> right. We'll pay you $200 an article. <laughs> Go to it. Henry was back, and he dove in. After the Slate articles, he picked up other writing work here and there. He did some consulting on the side. And then a friend of mine from the dot-com boom called me, and he said, I'm thinking about starting a tech publication for New York. What do you think about that? And I had, I think, a year earlier started my own blog called Internet Outsider. Mm -hmm. been writing a lot about the tech industry. Went and talked to him and said, this is a terrific idea, and I'm your guy. We're going to do it together. Uh -huh. And so he had a lot of startup experience. I had the journalism experience. I had watched all of these companies come into being in the 1990s, and I always wanted to do a startup. Uh -huh. So it just seemed like perfect confluence of um, uh, all the different things that I was excited about and could still do and, and so forth. Um, and so we launched it together the next uh -huh. week. Oh, really? Three of us, yeah. Just three people? Yep. I was the employee number one. Um, we hired two people. We built a website. We launched. It was the three of us in the loading dock of another startup. We wrote frantically. We had raised, um, I think the seed money was about 400000 We had all contributed that first year. So we knew we had about a year for four or five people. Uh -huh. And if we didn't figure something out in that year, we were done. So right fast. This, of course, was the beginning of what eventually would become Business Insider, which today employs 500 people and reported $100 million in revenue last year. Very different from what it was in the beginning. 
And what kinds of things were you writing? What, do you remember like one of the first things you wrote back in the day? Yeah, I mean, we, we were all writing. We, uh, we were writing about seven to ten stories a day each, I would say. Um, and we were writing about the internet industry, and it's what I knew how to do. We used to do financial models, and we used to talk about research that had come out. Was this price target crazy? Was it not? Executives would leave. They would get into scandals. We'd talk about that. We'd do original reporting. What, what was the moment that you knew it was like, oh, this is a viable business? It was extremely uncertain for many of the first few years, but the big story that that launched us early was I got an inside read on a big layoff that AOL was doing. And once we published that, we became the morning read for everybody at AOL. So suddenly thousands of people were checking the site every day to see that there was an update on the impending layoffs. Uh-huh. And then they happened, and we chronicled that. We, we started getting mail from all over the world because it's a global company, so they have to fire everybody in France before New York wakes up. So all of our sources emailed us all of the firing documents. And so it was like having a mini CNBC focused just on the AOL layoffs. Uh-huh. This is what you could do in digital media in those days. I, I would say we knew it was viable very early. When you came back into journalism, right? So like you 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 started, then you went, then you sort of went into a, a much higher paid version of journalism, which is being a Wall Street analyst. And then you came back into the, the regular version of journalism. Uh, and... Um, there's a, some people who are not happy about that. That is correct. Uh, there was in the in the New Yorker article about you. There was this. Uh, there was a quote from this guy Stephen Shepard, Steve Shepard, who is a Business Week editor, um, who said, um, quoting, um, "You know, he wasn't the he wasn't the only villain or the, even the primary cause of the boom and bust, but he typified the worst excesses on Wall Street. Blodgett was dishonest and deeply cynical. Journalists should be the opposite. It hurts me to see him ply our trade." How how do you react to that sentiment? Well, it sucks to hear it. I mean, I don't... Anybody who is in the opinion or writing business is going to get a lot of feedback. I have heard through my life some people say, oh, I love it when people criticize me. I hate that. It is so ridiculous. I love to just smack them down and block them on Twitter. Like, bring it on. Right. I have never felt that. (laughs) It always hurts. And so... Every mean comment, every mean tweet. And so I am very sorry to hear that. Uh, Look, I mean, what I said to everybody when I started writing, and I started writing on the blog, and then I started, I mean, obviously at Slate, when I reemerged, there were lots of pies thrown and, and garbage and rotted fruit. And I remember going back to Jacob Weisberg and saying, look, you know, I'm sorry. Like, I didn't mean to bring this on you. And and one of the other senior editors <laughs> at Slate was like, oh, no, we're all about the pies. And so I said, okay, thank you. This was the whole, this that was the whole strategy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that was good. Yeah. And it was like, okay, a welcoming yeah. community. Um, but I have worked incredibly hard to regain the trust that I had that was destroyed by the allegations against me. And so I understand why people who saw that and and read that feel that way, but I am grateful to everybody who has given me a chance to earn back that trust. Ten years in, Henry is still serving as the CEO of Business Insider. He seems very happy to be the one writing about people in business and not being the one people are writing about.
Without Fail is hosted by me and produced by Molly Messick and Sarah Platt. It is edited by me and Devin Taylor. Music and mixing by Bobby Lord. If you like Without Fail, leave us a review. Tell your friends about it. This is Sarah Platt's last episode of Without Fail. It has been a pleasure and a joy working with her to produce these episodes. She's moving on to a very exciting new project, which I can't say anything about right now, but look for her name in future credits and future podcasts coming down the road soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.